Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen, amen. You guys can have a seat. You can have a seat. I'm uh, glad to see you here this morning, whether you are here in person or watching online. Um, we're just glad to be able to worship the Lord together, um, to hear from his word, to gather around uh, his throne and sing his praise together. Um, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today I'll be preaching through the gospel of Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 40. So if you have a Bible handy, why don't you go ahead and find our text. <clears throat> While you're doing that, I'm just going to throw out a hypothetical but very probably painful exercise for you all to participate in. Uh, very briefly, uh, just imagine, imagine, this is going to hurt, I'm telling you, imagine that the, the state of the world, the state of things right now uh, goes on for another five years. Yeah, that's right. And I'm just talking about Major League Baseball's new extra innings rules. I'm not even talking about the coronavirus. Imagine. You have to suffer through another five years of just pandemonium and uh, forgetting what normal looks like. What if, okay, all right, I'm telling you this is going to hurt. What if, what if this went on for another 10 years? 10 years. Or maybe 20? Uh, f- what if 40 years, you, you, you weren't sure if you were ever going to be able to take that mask off again? You thought maybe you should just become a preacher so that you could not wear a mask with utter impunity on Sunday mornings. Um, and that scenario, all those scenarios, there's at least a, an end date in sight maybe. You know, I give you a, a timeline. Here's, okay, 10 years. There's a set amount of time. Maybe you can work up the patience and the stamina to wait that long. But what if you didn't know how long it was going to be? And then one day you just look back and you realize for the last 40 years, for the last lifetime, you have been living a life that, that is not necessarily what you expected. That, that, would be, that would be really, really difficult. In, in today's text, in Luke, there, there, we meet a man and a woman whose lives have been spent waiting. No, they're not waiting to be able to eat out at restaurants or like they want to. They're waiting instead, in the case of this woman, her entire life of, of in excess of 80 years, they've been waiting for the, the consolation, the redemption of Israel, uh, the restoration of God's people, the building up again of Jerusalem, the, the holy city. Um, been waiting decades. And so my prayer this morning as we read this text is that it will help us to ground our hope as, as we wait through this life. Because there are certainly ways in which we find ourselves to be waiting for something better, waiting for the Lord's justice, waiting for vindication, waiting just to be face-to-face with our maker, with our Savior. Uh, I, I want today's text to ground us in, in the gospel that we might have hope. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm banking on. So let me, let me read our text, and, uh, and then I'll pray for us before we go further. Gospel of Luke chapter 2, 
starting in verse 22, when the time came for their purification, this is referring to Mary and Joseph, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, meaning Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was a righteous or was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we, we marvel at texts like this, just, just thinking of a time when Jesus was not known for who he would become. This, this baby being brought into Jerusalem would not have been recognized by hardly anybody except those looking for him. And even then, their eyes would have had to be opened by, by none other than your Holy Spirit that they might know who this baby was. We live in retrospect of that. We can look back and see now all that Jesus would become, all that he accomplished, the trajectory of his life and the consequences that have been borne out over centuries, not just following the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but even preceding it. Everything, all of history has been reshaped, has been reinterpreted for us by the cross. Uh, so, Lord, as we, as we read this, help us then to reorient ourselves around this, this child whom you have sent into the world for the, the consolation and redemption of your people. Lord, we, we want hope. We, we ourselves are awaiting a, a consolation and redemption of, of a different, maybe even far greater kind. In our own hearts, in our families, certainly in this world, 
Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. And while we wait, we ask that you would instill in us a hope, not in ourselves, not in humanity, but in Christ, the God-man who has come on our behalf, your salvation. Would you speak to us now? Would you help us to think carefully about what you have said already through your word? And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let me give you some thoughts about this text before, before we go any further. Um, there, are, there are a few elements of this story that I just want to, to highlight because I think it helps us to understand what's going on here. The first of them is this, that, that this story, in, uh, humming in the background, kind of the white noise of this story, is endless waiting. Decades, decades upon generations of, of people waiting on the Lord to act, on the Lord's intervention, on the Lord's restoration, salvation, consolation for his people. If you will, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We'll be looking at verse 17 here. Uh, this, this, it's not often something we maybe think of, but Chronicles in, historically has been actually the, the, the final book of the Old Testament. The way, the way our English Bibles organize it, we have it kind of in the middle where all these other histories are, which makes more sense to us. But, uh, but historically, Chronicles actually is the bookend. It's the, it's the concluding chapter of the Old Testament, which I think is really interesting given kind of the, the next books that we get to are the Gospels, including the Gospel of Luke. And so the context for what, what, the, what Simeon and Anna in particular are feeling, I think is, it's helpful for us to look at Second Chronicles to kind of get a sense of just how desperate they are for the Lord's intervention. If you look at chapter 36, verse 17, I'll read this quickly. Therefore, the Lord brought up against them the citizens of Jerusalem and Ju- Judah, the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So that's kind of the, that's really the, uh, the conclusion of so much of the Old Testament's history. It's been built up to have this promised people of God that the Lord gives a special promised land where they're supposed to live and, and really dwell among, like the Lord will dwell among them in the presence of his temple, uh, his presence over the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, through the, the priests and the sacrificial system, all of this was meant to be uh, a really a newly created kingdom for God's people to dwell with him. Uh, there are certainly a lot of provisions that the Lord made, uh, but the Lord is very gracious to them. 
Um, but, but eventually the people's sin becomes so egregious, it becomes so grievous, that really the only sufficient response is, is that the Lord's judgment would lash out against them. The Lord's judgment is always just and right. And when even his promised people turn their backs on him and in faithlessness worship other gods and follow other peoples, uh, the, the Lord responds righteously with judgment. And this judgment results in the utter destruction of Jerusalem. All of God's people are scattered abroad. This has already happened to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom of God's people, which had split off decades before. But now, finally, fully, it's happened in Jerusalem, the, 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 the very city of God, the, the city of the king. And so they are sent out. And that's the, like, that's the concluding sort of uh, expectation, understanding of what has happened. There is this, ex- there is this uh, atmosphere of just, just kind of waiting, wondering if, if things will be made right again. If the Lord will step in. Now, elsewhere in the Old Testament, through, through men like Nehemiah and Ezra, we do see what happened of Cyrus's proclamation here. Right, that, that the Lord does have a plan and he sends his people back, but it's in a small measure. And even as the people reconstitute the city and rebuild its walls and try to make this new temple happen, it's not the same. They all openly acknowledge that this is not the same. There is still an expectation and anticipation that one day the Lord will fully and finally rebuild the kingdom that was destroyed in an eternal way. They're waiting. They're waiting, they're waiting. And so generations pass, and what you end up with are people like Simeon and Anna who have been living their entire lives in the ruins of God's judgment. That's the context of of this story. And, And it sort of lurks in the background, but I think it's important for us to remember the endless waiting that God's people have experienced up until this point where Jesus has been born. Another thing I'd like to just highlight from this, from this narrative is the exemplary faith we see demonstrated by all the people here. And it starts with Mary and Joseph. Right? Mary and Joseph, it, it is very clear that they are fully obeying the law of the Lord. It frames the story, the beginning and the end, both make reference to the fact that they did everything according to the law of the Lord. And this is really interesting in part because we also get a glimpse of the fact that Mary and Joseph are really kind of poor. They don't actually have a lot of resources to make obedience to the Lord something that would be easy for them. Forget traveling. Here, even in the story, we see that they offer, uh, they offer uh, two young pigeons, a pair of turtle doves, well, this is the sort of uh, sacrifice that the Lord weaves into his law for people who can't afford anything better. Normally, they'd be offering like a, like a lamb. But the Lord makes an exception for people in his, in his kingdom who are unable to offer that. And he says, look, in, instead, you can offer turtle doves. You can offer pigeons to me. And so Mary and Joseph, at great cost to themselves, they travel, they, they offer their son to the Lord, they redeem him. Um, that's just one element of God's law, that the firstborn belongs to the Lord, and you have to redeem him uh, by, by doing this. So Mary and Joseph, they are, they are obedient despite their poverty, and, and also despite their lack of full, total comprehension of even what's going on. As Simeon prophesies over their son, the, the Luke is quick to mention that they, are, they marvel at the things that he says. 
It tells us that they're amazed, they're astonished. It's not that they disbelieve him, but this is maybe not what they were expecting to hear at this exact moment in time. I just thought we were bringing our baby to the temple for a dedication. Why are you, strange old man, holding my child up and telling me these crazy things about him? This is not at all what I was expecting when this child was born. But they obey. They trust the Lord. They they follow him. They adhere to his law. Their faith is exemplary. So too is the faith of Simeon. Right? Simeon, it says here, is, is righteous and devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Moreover, the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, is upon him. It's as if he has been anointed by the Lord with understanding, with, with, even with faith, to know who this unnamed baby is. He understands. He's drawn to the temple because of his devotion to the Lord. His life is completely defined by seeing and seeking the Lord's salvation. It, it, it all hinges on that. In verse 26, it, he points out that uh, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He is waiting for the Messiah, and he knows that it won't be okay for him to die until that moment happens. And then verse 30, he then says, my eyes have seen your salvation. So moreover, I mean, he, he very intimately knows that the Lord has a salvation plan, that this salvation is in the person of this, this child, Jesus. That this is the Lord's salvation. And when he sees Christ, he has seen that salvation. He then says, I, I can die now. Well, what's so interesting about that is that Jesus hasn't actually done anything but be born. But this man, out of such faith in the Lord's promises and the hope of the Lord's restoration and consolation of his people, he knows, he sees Jesus and knows that, that, that he has nothing more to worry about. He really has nothing more to wait for, that the Lord is on the move. The Lord is doing exactly what he had promised he would do to restore his people. Simeon is a faithful man. Anna is a faithful woman. In verse 37, we find out that she has not departed from the temple, but that she worships with fasting and prayer night and day. The, the temple is like her second home, maybe even her first home. Who knows? She's found some broom closet somewhere, and that's just where she sleeps. Um, she, she loves the Lord. She loves to be in his presence, to be around his people, to seek their consolation and, and redemption When she sees Jesus, she immediately begins to give thanks to God, and she begins to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Despite a lifetime of what we would imagine would be pretty painful widowhood, especially in this culture and this time in history, she has spent, I mean, 80, 70 years of her life as a widow, uh, that, that's not a good economic place to be. That's not a good social place to be. But, but here at the end of it all, I mean, she sees Jesus, she hears about God's salvation, and all she can do is proclaim what the Lord is doing among his people. Just as an aside, this one's, this one's free. Um, I just think this is such a helpful reminder of the beauty and importance of of older saints for God's people. Man, like I, just, I look at this woman's example, and I think, man, when I'm 84 years old, or however old she is here, I, I hope that my first inclination 
when I am reminded of the hope of the Lord, the promises of his salvation is to continue to herald it to other people. And this woman's in the middle of the temple. She's just shouting to anyone who will listen about some random baby that has just shown up. She doesn't care because she knows what the Lord is doing. She has utter confidence in the Lord. All of her hope is in him. And so it just doesn't bother her to be able to just proclaim with such boldness. I love that. Um, you know, I, I think she, she doesn't have the same life experience as everybody there. You know, I wonder if she thought, well, I don't know if I'm qualified to, to disciple these people in the Lord. I, I've been widowed for most of my life. I don't really know the ins and outs of these people's lives. They have different life experiences. I can't really speak to that. She doesn't really let that hold her back. I'm kind of reading into the text at this point. She doesn't really even let that hold her back. But she, she, she proclaims the Savior. I think we, we could all strive to, to be like Anna, to be like, to be like Simeon. There's another person here, though, in the middle of this story, and that is the promised child. If there is a focal point in the story, here we have a focal person. Even though he says and really does nothing, uh, he's right there in the middle of it. He's kind of the, the glue of the whole narrative. Everyone in this story is pointing to Christ. His parents, Simeon, Anna... We think of Simeon's prophetic words about Jesus. We think of Anna's proclamation. She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of, of Jerusalem. To speak of him. Now, maybe if you have an NIV translation, it says to speak of the child. Uh, but that, that's, I mean, that's fine. I, I think that's probably true. But I think it's even more helpful to realize that or to, to not be able to necessarily distinguish exactly who she's talking about. Is she talking about the Lord? Is she talking about Jesus? It really doesn't matter. They're one and the same. Right? She's proclaiming the hope of the Lord in this baby, this person, Jesus. All of humanity, not just all this story, but all of human history orbits ultimately around Jesus, who this baby is. In verse 34, Simeon points out that he has been appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel. He is himself. Jesus is a sign that is to be opposed. That thoughts, in verse 35, thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Right here in this, this little baby wrapped up, being dedicated at the temple, we have the dividing line of all humanity. What you think of Jesus is really the most important thing that you can think. It determines everything. And Simeon and Anna see that. Mary and Joseph, they recognize this even as they marvel at how it can be so. But Jesus is here dividing the world into two groups. Those who know him, those who know the Lord's redemption and those who do not. Verse 26 tells us that Jesus is the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, his anointed king, the one whom he has sent to redeem his people for himself. The salvation of God is who Jesus is. In this, in this person, we witness, we see the salvation of God. And that's true broadly. It's true nationally for the people of Israel. It's, it's true in a, in a large sense, you know, that you, you, we, all, the world, its only hope is to look to Jesus for redemption. But it's also true personally. It's true for individuals. Looking at verse 32 we see that Jesus is meant to be a light of revelation for the Gentiles. 
not just Israel, but, but really the rest of the world. He is meant to be a light of revelation. And then for Israel, he is meant to be the very glory of God's people. But verse 34 reminds us that it's not just the national, international, worldwide phenomenon that you must put your hope in Jesus. Rather, Jesus is for, for the rising and falling of many in Israel, for, for individuals within God's people. So in Jesus, the judgment of God is satisfied. If you recall, Simeon and Anna, they live under the shadow of God's judgment. They live among the ruins of God's past judgment, his just judgment. But if we're honest, his incomplete judgment. As, as horrible and devastating as the destruction of Jerusalem and the banishment of God's people was, it's still really not the full extent of what they or we or any of us actually deserve. I think we often forget that. Uh, that, that for God's people to worship other gods, to turn their backs on him, the result is not just that they relocate, as horrible as that is. But, but it is also that they are, they are perpetually cut off from the Lord. It's not just a matter of the temple being destroyed and there being no place to go worship. The temple as it was originally built, you understand. But, but it's a matter of God's presence being blocked, being cut off from God's people. Or rather, God's people being cut off from him. And so when Anna and Simeon see Jesus, they recognize that this is more than just some baby. This is the salvation, the restoration, the redemption of God's people. This is where God's judgment is fully and finally dealt with. And hope can begin. If you look with me at Romans Chapter 1, verse 17, and then we'll look at chapter 3 here in a second. Romans 1, 17 says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then you skip down to chapter 3 and starting in verse 21. But now, Paul tells us the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, apart from the temple, apart from the building of God's holy city. Although these things remind us and point us to the hope that Christ has, Jesus is the righteousness of God manifest, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God and are worthy of judgment. But, verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, a pleasing, friendship-making sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Yeah, even the divine forbearance that led to the destruction and devastation of Jerusalem. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus divides all of history. He turns God's just judgment into the hope of reconciliation, restoration, and consolation from God Almighty. The very one against whom all of us are born into rebellion. 
Jesus. He comes in, and Anna and Simeon, they see Jesus for who he is, and it changes everything. Simeon's willing to die because he's satisfied with what the Lord is doing through him. Anna, her whole life comes down to this one moment. So here are some points of application. I've got three points of application. What are the implications of this, that Jesus is our hope in the face of judgment, that Jesus is our hope when the whole world seems to be in disarray and chaos? What do we do? Why is this helpful? Number one, God's people are marked by hope. God's people are marked by hope, or at least they should be, right? We have, we have truly nothing to fear. We have everything to hope. We, we can have hope for ourselves, for our own souls. I think of that, that hymn, Before the Throne, uh, where, where the, the, the lyrics say that when Satan tempts me to despair about myself, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. We can reconcile, we can deal honestly with our own sin with the hope that we have as we look to Christ. And so when we find ourselves ensnared in sin and temptation, maybe the, the temptation further is to just mire, kind of get mired and wallow in our own misery. But the reality is that we can actually look to Jesus, who is our hope. Because in Christ, the judgment of God has been addressed. In Christ, the wrath of God that is justly due for our sin has been fully exercised. But on Jesus... And so we can hope in him. We, we can have hope for ourselves. We can have hope for the world. And I realize that, that, that even just the statement, that thought, that, you know, it's the end of the world, that, that has a pretty wide range of meanings, depending on your circumstances, depending on what you're used to, where you live, what you come from. The end of the world can look like spilled milk. If you're a toddler, uh, it, it can look far greater and more serious, you understand, as an adult or as a, as a widow. What does the end of the world look like? Well, Jesus gives us hope beyond it. See, Christians see things that other people just can't see. It's not because we have better vision. I mean, it's not because we have better eyes or smarter and we just were able to kind of figure out the Rubik's Cube. No, that has nothing to do with it. It's, it's because the Lord has kindly revealed to us who his son is. You know, Simeon, Simeon only shows up at the temple because the Holy Spirit draws him there. Anna is only, she, she just happens to run across Jesus because she's just living her entire life in dependence upon the Lord. She practically lives here at the temple. And the Lord in his providence, in his kindness, he reveals to her the one whom she's been waiting for. Christians can see things that other people just can't see. We, we see Jesus where there is only darkness and despair and chaos. We can see the hope that we have in Christ. Um, Hope is in that sense then for believers. It's like, it's like future promises just somehow suddenly invade our present circumstances. 
We, we look ahead, and it's not just that we, we hope in something or that we, we kind of expect, ah, I hope that that one day happens. Maybe if we're lucky, things will go the way that I'm expecting or planning my life around. And if not, you know, no, 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 no. It, it is that these promises that the Lord has made suddenly find their way burrowing down into our own soul and changing who we are. Uh, you, you know, you, you look at this story itself, Simeon holding this baby, he says, all right, now I can die. I've seen the Lord's salvation. Simeon, you don't even know what this baby's going to do. How can you know? He has no idea. But he loves the Lord and he trusts that the Lord has a plan. Somehow he will bring about redemption and reconciliation, that he will actually console and comfort and rebuild his people through this child. Simeon is content dying, holding the baby in his arms, not knowing that that baby is actually going to die for him. But that's, that's the essence of our hope. It's the essence of our hope even now. I don't know if you realize this or notice this, but you know, Jesus isn't physically here. And yet we hope in him. How many of you have actually seen Jesus face to face? I, I sincerely hope none of you, right? You haven't. And yet all of your hope, if you trust in the Lord, is bound up in this man, this person, the Son of God. All of your hope is bound up in him. Because you're awaiting the full and final revelation that is still to come, right? Just as Simeon held on to this baby, we hold on to the risen Christ awaiting the final revelation of his kingdom. It's not here yet, but we hope. We wait. And we can endure any kind of suffering and difficult circumstance, no matter what it looks like, whether it is the result of our sin or someone else's sin or just the fallen structure of this world. We look to Christ and he carries us through. He holds us together because our hope is not bound up in this life, in this 80 or 90 or 100 years or the status of things in this world, but we look to a kingdom that is coming. Jesus, and the, the sure, perfect work that he will accomplish. So maybe a question you need to ask yourself is, are you prone to being cynical, jaded? You know, every, everything that goes wrong, well, that was bound to happen. That's just the way things are. Well, you can't trust anybody to say the truth about anything because nobody knows anything and this world is going to the proverbial hell in a proverbial handbasket. It's all falling apart. I, it's, I think it's a great temptation nowadays to just kind of throw in the towel and every little thing we just can kind of roll our eyes at, you know? This is about as good as it's going to get. Well, no, it's not. It's not. Even at its best, this world is not as good as it can be. And it's not because humanity is just going to figure things out and get better and better and better. It's not just because you might grit your teeth a little bit harder and change and become a little more sanctified of your own volition. It's because Jesus is powerful and effective to do what the Lord will do through him to bring about the reconciliation and restoration of his people. That's what the Lord does. And that's the antidote for being cynical, I think. 
you know, I think it's, it's a poor witness to the hope of the gospel if our default is always to assume the worst. But instead, because of Christ, we can actually always assume and hope for the best. We can. Not, maybe not immediately seeing those results, but knowing that the Lord is always on the move, that he is always working for the good of his people, the good of the creation that he has sworn to remake. Right? Point number two, God's people should not fear honestly assessing the state of things, whether it's in the world, in our own souls, or in the church. I think that, that this, this point isn't quite as obviously explicit in this text, but I do think it's the, it's the flip side of my previous point, right? That Christians should be marked by hope. I think likewise Christians have nothing to be afraid of when we call sin, sin. Whether it's in our own hearts, or in the world, or even in our churches, even in this church. We have nothing to fear. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25 Paul tells us that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved." A hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This, this whole world groans. And I think, I think we probably recognize that. All right, we live in a fallen world, don't we? I mean, just think, think of the, the kind of the, just the circumstances that we're all constantly having to just navigate and think through these days. And, and, and that's just on kind of a normal day. Forget a pandemic kind of lurking in the background. And you just think of just the constant hum of evidence that this world is not as it should be. It's all around us. You can't escape it. Think about uh, just the sinful nature of the human race. And we're a mess. Even the best among us do wicked things. You, you yourself, I mean, you know this for yourself, right? Your own, your own goals and plans and hopes, you, just, you sometimes are powerless to actually affect any of those things. And it's because of your own kind of self-sabotage and sinfulness and selfishness, right? Am I the only one, right? Uh, this, this world is just not, it's not the way it's meant to be. We are all groaning. Under the, under the weight. But the beauty of the gospel is this. Well, one beautiful thing about the gospel is this. You can honestly, you can, you can wrestle with that. Like as the people of God, we have the, the freedom, we have the, the incredible privilege 
of being able to acknowledge that things aren't the way they should be. And we can do that without despairing, but instead looking to the cross and seeing where our hope for the, 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 the consolation of all these things lies. There's just, you, you can't find that anywhere else. There's just not a philosophy of man that can really deal with that. Not, not honestly, not long-term. I think for a lot of people, the reason they're able to get through difficult circumstances is because for some strange reason, they just assume that people will get better or that this world will just kind of be fixed if we just do the right things. Why? What in the world gives us any reason to hope in humanity fixing our own problems? See, the gospel, the gospel allows you to look at these things and not even flinch. Yeah, we can grieve, we can, we can bemoan the fact that this world isn't as the Lord has, has created it to be. Of course, but we grieve because we know what it will become. We can grieve our own sin openly. We can confess our own sin truthfully and humbly to one another because the Lord has already sworn to do something about it. Because in Christ, we have all the remedy we need. That changes everything. I, I, I really do think that that is an incredible apologetic for just the Christian faith. That we can honestly assess things and that we don't have to be afraid of of calling a spade a spade now this this freedom isn't necessarily freedom from tumult you understand but it's it's hope beyond it so what if instead of pretending that everything was great we acknowledged our sin and weakness and instead sought repentance for for many people though i think it's admitting when things are not right especially in our own hearts or in our church it can feel maybe like we're being faithless. You know, we kind of say, oh, I can't say that. I can't, you know, I can't acknowledge that or talk about that because then it's real. You know, then it's insurmountable. I don't have a solution for that. But more likely that reveals that our hope isn't actually in anything but ourselves or our institutions, not the Lord or his salvation. If you think that you might be a sinner, uh, which I encourage you to think that about yourself at some point, um, if you think that you're a sinner or you find yourself trapped, mired in a pattern of sinfulness, um, don't, don't be afraid to acknowledge that and then go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Because Christ is our ready advocate sworn to remove our guilt and face our judgment. And so then that hope, we can let that hope for mercy drive us to repentance. So let me just you know, pose another question here. Are you, are you unwilling to recognize sin in yourself or in other people? Because if you're unwilling to, to face that reality, especially if it's in yourself, the, the truth is you might not actually be hoping in Christ who gives us 
who, who, who changes us and makes us new, who gives us new life. Now, I, I've, uh, I've d- debated uh, saying what I'm about to say, but I think, I think this will be helpful. I just think it's a good thing to just kind of bear in mind. Um, you know, we, we hear a lot of talk these days about systemic sin. Uh, you just can't really go anywhere without hearing about it. And maybe people don't call it sin, um, but systemic issues, right? And the idea being that, that behind maybe institutions even are unfair practices, things that are opposed to people. And I think there's a lot that we can say about that, right? There's certainly a lot that needs to be parsed out um, that I don't have the time to really delve into right here. But, but I, I think this principle is helpful, especially in, in that context. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, you know, people are obviously sinful. Uh, it stands to reason that the things that we create, the institutions we build, the things we participate in, even with the best of intentions, might also kind of resemble us in that we're sinful. The things we create might be sinful in different ways. Um, but I, I think, I think sometimes Christians tend to instantly push back at the thought that we might be even unwitting participants in kind of bigger picture sins. Because we, we're, we don't want to acknowledge sin where it might be. Because we're afraid of the ramifications, we're afraid of what, the, what it might mean. We're afraid that, that it might, it might really smear the name of Christ when we, we, don't, we obviously don't want that. But the hope of the gospel means this, that there, there is no need to hide from our sin. But instead, we can, we, can, we can expose it. We should even seek it out to expose it, especially when it's in the midst of, of our churches, our hearts, our families, because the gospel gives us hope. The gospel gives us reassurance that we can honestly assess things, that we can see sin, and that we can then turn to the Lord for repentance, for recreation. Point number three, this is my final point. God's people are marked by hope, uh, God's people can honestly confront and confess and assess our sin. Number three, God's people cannot, it's impossible for God's people ultimately to be disappointed. You can't be disappointed. I'm not saying don't be disappointed. How dare you to be disappointed? I'm saying that when it is all said and done, not one person who has put their hope in Jesus will be disappointed. Not one person will be let down. Not one person will be ashamed of a lifetime of, of, of pursuing Christ. Not one. Do you, do you hedge your bets? Come on, let's think about it. Do you hedge your bets, right? Is, is there a way where you maybe as a believer you say, no, I'm, uh, all, my, all my hope is in Christ. And yet, maybe there are ways that we reveal that we're possibly also kind of putting our money on another horse. I don't know why I'm using gambling analogies. I'm not a gambler. Anyway, um, is, that, is that something you might be guilty of? Let me just kind of give you some thoughts here. Just how broad is your hope in Christ? For example, the next time you sin against somebody, your spouse, your, your kids, 
your neighbors, your coworkers, whatever. Next time you sin against somebody, and you might be able to answer this question right now because you just kind of know your own patterns. Will you try to cover it up or kind of defer or change the narrative? Oh, you don't really understand. Or will you deal with it? I'm telling you, if, if your hope is in Christ, this may seem counterintuitive, you deal with it. You face it head on. Here's another question. Next time someone else sins against you, will your world fall apart? Is all hope lost? Everything's out of balance. The whole world is topsy-turvy. It's not to minimize other people's sins, but it is to say Christ gives us hope beyond the sins that other people commit against us. Even, even the most deep abiding sin. The cross is, is certainly infinitely more powerful. Do you remember the gospel? Maybe, maybe you, you strongly believe the gospel, but you still manage to find comfort in sin. Your hope isn't as fully in the gospel as you might have thought because you're still looking for the consolation from someone else, something else. I mean, think about this. What if I raved, just raved, about a bank? <clears throat> I love this bank. The customer service is great. I trust them with, with everything I have. Man, I love their safety deposit boxes and all. Every, they got everything. They're great. They, got, they do great interest rates. That You can get your money whenever you want. They got an awesome app. I'm just raving about this bank. And so you say, all right, you know what? I'm going to go to that bank too. I'm going to put everything I have in this bank. I'm going I'm to unload all of my assets into this bank. So one day you come to my house. And we're talking and we're just chatting. And I get up from the couch. And a cloud of money just appears out from underneath the, the cushions, right? Just a cloud of, of money. That's not going to happen. A cloud of money just appears. And you say, Robert, what is going on? I thought you, uh, don't you have a bank? Why are you stuffing your, your furniture with your cash? And I go, well, I mean, I like them, but, you know, I just really want to keep some of it safe, though. You would have a lot of questions about my sanity, for one, but also about the very nature of this bank that you have put your hope in, right? It doesn't make sense. Why am I going halfway here and halfway there with something as important as that? Don't do that with the gospel, it doesn't, it doesn't serve you or anybody else to do that with the gospel. Go all in. Put all that you have. Put your whole life into hoping in Christ. You will not be disappointed. He cannot let you down. You can entrust your very life to him. 1 Corinthians 12, 31, Paul tells uh, the, the Corinthian church that they ought to pursue higher gifts, he says. You should pursue, he talks about spiritual gifts of teaching and, and all sorts of stuff. He says, no, you should pursue, though, above everything else, pursue these higher gifts. And later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he kind of gives us an idea of what some higher gifts might be. And they're not what you think. It's not necessarily speaking in tongues or doing some sort of miraculous sign or healing. Instead, he says that the greatest, the greatest of these gifts is faith, hope, and love. 
Faith, hope, and love. These are things that believers should be cultivating, that we should be seeking. We should be asking the Lord, give me greater gifts of faith, hope, and love. Maybe you want to be a better understander and teacher, communicator of the Bible. That's a good thing to aspire to. But even better than that is that you would seek the Lord to give you faith, hope, and love. And Paul tells us then immediately after that, though, he says, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love, which is interesting because what that means is that faith and hope, ultimately, they just, they just give way to love. When it's all said and done, faith and hope fall by the wayside and love is really the final gift that remains. It's the final gift that's just still going to be used and exhibited by God's people into eternity. Why? Because faith and hope at some point kind of become unnecessary, if you think about it. Once you're face-to-face with your creator, once you're face-to-face with the one who has redeemed you from the grave, do you need faith or hope anymore? Probably not. You just kind of need love for him and for his people. That's really all you're going to know. It all, it all really culminates in love, but even now, even in this life, we get this sense of why love is so essential. And if you look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, he tells us this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we also have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is the Christian life. We are just parading about, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, though, but we rejoice in, we can have hope in, even in the midst of our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces, what's that again? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint. Hoping in Christ will never let you down. Because God's, why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us already. In other words, you can hope because the Lord has already given you a down payment, a deposit of everything he intends to do. You can hope not based on some sort of wishful thinking that maybe the Lord loves you, but because he in fact does, that actually if you are in him and you have his Holy Spirit, he has poured out his love onto you and you are the current, present recipient of his love. And so then we hope, not just wishful thinking, but we actually, we hope in something that is tangible, that is real, And that is only getting better and better until we see him, our salvation, face to face. Let me pray for us. Lord, we want to to hope. We want to hope in you. And of course, we are all facing different circumstances right now, some of which are more difficult than others, some of which uh, have been more long-term even than the, the crises that we all seem to be facing right now. Or we need hope. Help us to look to you. 
Help us to look to you in the face of the fallenness of the world around us. Help us to look to you in the face of the sin that seems to just pervade our culture, that even, that even hits us directly from those that we love. Or help, help us to hope and turn to you for that hope. Even as we face the darkness of our own hearts, the condition of our own souls, which at times can seem hopeless. But Lord, we know that we will never find hope, that we cannot find sustainable joy for the long term apart from your son's intervention. So more than giving us hope, we ask that underlying all of that, that you would draw us to faith in Christ, that you would cause us to see the cross, to see your son who has been given for us as a ransom. The one who absorbed all of your wrath and judgment on our behalf so that we no longer have to live under wrath and judgment's shadow, but instead can live in the light of the revelation, the glory of your son, Jesus. He is the one that we want. He is the one that we long to see. Help us to see him more clearly. Lord, make us a people who are known for our hope. Not just optimism, but abiding peace. As we taste even now the first fruits of the redemption that you have bought for us in Christ, that we yet wait a full final revelation of. And in the meantime, would you make us more like him, that others might see him too. Would you purify your people? Would you cause us to hope more in Christ than in ourselves and therefore to be a people who are repentant, not afraid to confess our sins to one another and certainly to you? Give us hope in Jesus, we pray. And we ask that in his name alone. Amen. Amen.